What makes businesses successful? What are companies doing today to survive? Who is thriving and why? And how do we ensure we don't just survive, but we get ahead? Many leaders are asking or being asked similar questions every day and often struggle to find the right answer. Join me for this episode of Unconstrained Conversations as I discuss these questions and get potential answers with Philip Wolf. As founder of travel industry research company Focusrite and serial board member for startups around the world, Philip has not only a front row board seat, but also a very unique perspective on what type of company will be successful in the future. Enjoy this great conversation about building a lean, mean, customer-obsessed machine. And as always, make sure you subscribe. Another great episode of the Unconstrained Conversation podcast today. And we have a very special guest today, Philip Wolf, um, who is uh, not just a serial entrepreneur and serial board member, but also the founder of Focusrite, which is well known to many people in the industry um, and is probably still the, the premier um, uh, news of uh, research and uh, information and obviously, uh, the Focusrite Conference is one of the uh, premier events um, in the hotel industry or in the distribution and travel industry uh, in the world. So I'm very, very happy to have uh, Philip on the uh, podcast today. Welcome, Philip. Thank you very much, Klaus. Uh, honor to be with you. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, me too. I know it's always going to be a great conversation with you, Philip. Um, First, let's start off with um, kind of the state of the world and, and travel. Um, we haven't talked in a while, so what is your, what's your perspective and, and um, what is your, uh, what's your view of the, of the world as it is today? We're in uh, early November here. Well, I guess for everybody who asked that question, you're going to get another version of an answer. <laughs> but, uh... You know, once upon a time, Klaus, travel, tourism, and hospitality was the world's largest industry at about 10% of global GDP. And so when you answer your question from a big picture perspective, of course, that's uh, we're a ghost of what we once were. So instead, I sit on a lot of boards and advise companies. I'm also a mentor in many cases. I make sure the people I work with don't dwell on how long is it going to take till we get back? How many more months? When do you think we'll, and all those questions, I find them very unproductive. And uh, a good replacement of that is focusing on the market share you have and whatever the size of the market is. And I've seen companies that make to that shift. It's one example of stuff that's working well right now. Yeah, and, and, and you, you mentioned, as you mentioned, you sit on a number of boards of, of uh, companies in the travel space around the world. Um, what, what have you seen? Kind of what works for the companies that are um, that that are um, going to win or that have survived so far? And, and um, what are the what are the recommendations and the advice you give you give them? Yeah. Well, um, as I said, I do sit on a lot of boards, different continents, and I'm uh, going through everything from Chapter 11 bankruptcy in the United States to treading water in uh, Europe. And I have a couple of companies that are actually doing uh, very well, namely the hotel company Red Doors in uh, Singapore and Indonesia. I don't know if you're familiar with them. And then, of course, Hopper, Hopper in Boston and Montreal. 
you know, people always ask me what's working and what should companies be doing. And if I've learned anything, Klaus, it's not the answer to that question that's so important. It's a company's ability to execute on those answers. So mm -hmm. in, in uh, Hopper's case, uh, they've been a native app only OTA focused on millennials, and that's paying off in spades right now. I ask a lot of companies, what's your millennial strategy? And you either get no answer or a poor answer. And in today's environment, where younger tra travelers are outnumbering older travelers, it's incumbent upon companies to figure out how they can uh, adjust their business and communications for different uh, different age groups. So that, that's one, one thing. Uh, in Red Door's case, uh, for example, they're now the largest hotel chain in Indonesia, for example. So they're benefiting enormously from domestic travel in a particular uh, country. So mm -hmm. that that's that's a, another thing for some companies that pivot is straightforward, going from an international focus to a domestic focus. While for other companies, it's just in incredibly uh, difficult, but it's <laughs> it's it's important. You know, I I would say the uh, the amazing thing for me because I do get asked all these questions. I think companies are uh, not properly assessing how important it is for them to organizationally and culturally change now. Leaner, meaner times, the need to pivot, the need to get close to your customers. And I think, uh, I, I think companies that have fundamentally taken advantage of the time and completely reworked their organization to improve it uh, are going to be competitively advantaged, and companies that are pretty much organized, and I, I don't mean class reducing headcount. I mean fundamental yeah, right. fundamental culture, reporting yeah. lines, how you approach things. A big trend now is STO single thread ownership, and I just think that companies that have not fundamentally improved their organization and culture are going to pay a severe price coming out of this. That's my opinion. Yeah, it, it feels like you, know, you mentioned you mentioned Hopper and, and, and Red Doors, and I think especially Hopper. Um, um, it feels like when they when they launched, they were almost ahead of their time now, and now they're right in the sweet spot, right? With yeah. the millennial focus um, and with the mobile first, um, and, and just yeah. enabling this conversation between the customer or the client and the um, and and the the, the suppliers, because Hopper is all about conversational interaction, really. They also do a good job uh, understanding customer psyche at different moments mm -hmm. of searching, shopping, and buying. So if the Hopper recommendation engine says buy now and the customer doesn't want to buy now, they're really good at understanding that behavioral dynamic and creating add-on products that solve a problem or make the customer feel better. So in that example I just gave you, the uh, you can do cancel for any reason or change for any reason or the price-free product. And I think companies need to get better at understanding customer emotions and needs, searching, shopping, and, and buying uh, travel 
now. And again, that that understanding can lead to an array of profitable add-on products. Yeah, that's very interesting. It ties in nicely in the conversation that I had last week, which um, which uh, is going to be released by the time we're releasing this this conversation with uh, Calvin Anderson, who's the chief commercial officer of a company called Domio um, Apartment ah, House. Yeah. Um, and, and Understanding uh, customers to the point of knowing that um, if bar closures are announced in New Hampshire versus bar closures being announced in Florida, what the impact is on customer behavior and customer conversion. And he talked exactly what you're talking about. It's just understanding to the deepest level the customer groups and, and, and re, re, redeveloping the engagement with the customer and understanding of the, of the customer yeah. to a point where you actually understand what, what is driving their behavior. And I think on that topic, if I may, lots of companies say they're customer focused. I've learned uh, many are not really, even though they say they are, but more importantly, customer focus is not enough. Some people bristle when I say that. Oh, we're customer focused. I say, sorry, not enough. You need to be customer obsessed. And uh, at some really good companies, the difference between customer focus and customer obsession is profound. I can I can share some examples if you think that would be helpful. Yeah, I'd love to. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So in a customer-focused company, they would be proud of saying, we listen to what our customers say. But if you're obsessed about your customers, you're continuously testing and measuring and learning via all the consumer science tools out there uh, today. And that goes for like if somebody says, oh, I understand customers' wants and needs. That's not enough. You have to invent and deliver on unanticipated uh, needs. It's always a signature of a great uh, company when they solve problems customers didn't even really know they had. You know, Netflix is so good at that. Uh, yeah. stuff. And here's one of my favorite, uh, I'm, I'm quoting now, a customer-focused company balances customer satisfaction and margin to build a successful business. You know, a lot of companies will say, well, we can't make this change or we can't do that because we have to, we have a business to run here. And a customer-obsessed uh, business never talks that way. They are always a champion for uh, leading with what pleases and delights customers and make sure that the continuous shipment of those products delight customers are very difficult to replicate, and they know that revenue always follows when you do that. Mm-hmm. And the best example of that is probably Amazon, right? The, the, especially when, when you say the revenue follows, because for, for how many years has revenue has Amazon been uh, unprofitable? Yeah. Because they were so obsessed with the customer, right? Yeah, I mean, a great example for listeners. Uh, well, you know, company A could be developed, have some good ideas for product enhancement, but the sales and marketing teams may not embrace it because it would upset the revenue streams. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and in many organizations, that is okay. In other words, that's permitted for sales to put a stop sign up for product development. But in a truly customer-obsessed business, B2B or B2C calls, uh, if it's demonstrated that product enhancements will strengthen engagement with customers, solve more problems, reduce friction, delight them, then the changes are always made. And they just have the confidence that whatever the short-term revenue hit is, the longer the longer term will be more than made up for. So it, that's a great example of what I was talking about, underestimating organizational and cultural changes required uh, now. Mm-hmm. You know, another thing is what I call cadence, speed. Uh, a lot of companies are realizing it's almost become cliche that what used to take 
six months, companies are now getting done in uh, six weeks. Uh, but again, <clears throat> to support what I'm saying is some of those companies will go back to the six-month six behavior over time. But others have learned that the faster cadence is just a better way to run the business. It's uh, leaner, more agile, more customer-oriented, and they're able to uh, continuously deliver on customer needs. And they're going to stay that way. And I, mm -hmm. I think cadence is a top priority for leadership. And uh, some companies are getting good at it and some are not. And then of those that are getting good at it, only some of those will stay that way and others will revert back. Yeah, that's probably one, one of the most difficult parts when you, when you have a certain cadence to maintain it and stay true to that. Because it's very easy to fall back and say that the emergency is, 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 or the urgency is over. Let's go back to where we used to where we used to be, and the risk obviously is that somebody else is going to come and take over. I yeah, and I think that risk. Some companies are underestimating the risk you just mm -hmm. astutely summarized, Klaus, and you know we'll we'll, uh, we'll see. You know, another example is on decision the speed of decision making. <clears throat> it's it's almost legacy thinking to say, well, in order to make a good decision, you need to take time. And historically, that's that's what he accepts. But uh, a competitive strength now of companies, along with all these other things we've been discussing, is uh, Bezos, Jeff Bezos is great at this, is he, he profoundly believes and asserts across the whole organization that rapid quality decision-making is a skill, right? Mm. And that you have to make decisions, excellent decisions, quickly. And a lot of people bristle when I say that because they're trained to death believing that good decisions take time. And so that's another example. It's, it's related to the cadence issue. But I think companies that hone their skills on quality, rapid decision-making will also enjoy tremendous, tremendous competitive advantage. Yeah, if I, if I put myself in the shoes of a listener, I would, I would probably ask myself the question, well, how do you balance, how do you combine rapid the rapidity and the, the, the speed of decision-making with, with the excellence and the quality that is necessary? Do you need, you know, is data a key driver of that or is the quality of the people the key driver of that? Or what is, in your opinion, how do you achieve that, that optimum balance? Between the two? Excuse me. You just answered correctly my two answers. First, <laughs> first has to do with the caliber of personnel. You really need a certain type, both with smarts and a certain uh, swagger about, about them. And, you know, this comes in all ages like some people even at a young age thrive in environments like this you need to look for those people and hire them and i just see too many companies are content with their b team you know what i mean mm -hmm. oh we've had them they're pretty good we can't really get somebody that much better so really uh upping the ante on the caliber of your personnel and then yes uh it's amazing how some companies talk about that they're a data-driven organization you know what I've learned, Klaus, that if somebody volunteers that their company is data-driven, it usually to me means they're not. <laughs> a real data-driven company would never go around saying, oh, a data-driven company, because it's just normal uh, right. for them. So I'm always wary when, when people feel compelled to announce that they're a data-driven company. So, yeah, it feels to me, it feels to me, especially over the last six months, it's never been more important to, than, than to really dig into the data and, and 
back to your Hopper example, right? And really, really start understanding who your customers are and what drives them and, and how you can influence their behavior. And yeah. Maybe before people got away with, yeah, it's good enough, but now it's good enough is not good enough anymore. You really need well, to good, 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 enough to, right? good enough will guaranteed marginalize your business. Mm -hmm. that's, how, that's how brutal it is out there. Mm -hmm. You know, one of my favorite simple litmus tests for artificial intelligence specifically is with AI, a company's product gets better and better the more the customers use it. And when a company is not uh, a big user and deployer of AI, the customer experience is not continuously improving the more they use it. That's, that's that's the litmus test. You know? If someone tells me, "Oh yeah, we're data driven. We use machine learning. We use," I was just always asking that litmus test question. Okay, do you do, do your products continuously improve the more your customers use them? And invariably, the answer is no. And then then the red flag should be raised, or mm -hmm. the red light should go off. But is, is that is that also true for a company that just you know uh, uses data and, and and like ours that makes decisions on data, which is not really that dependent on the usage of the, the, the customer or the end user, which is a person at the hotel or the corporate office, but it's it's the amount and the quality of data you're getting, and and, and the more data you get, the better your decisions are, and that the, the ultimately the outcome is is, is improved. Um, you could argue that that, that, the, that the, you could argue the test of that is how how many how many people override the decisions that the system is making. So. Um, I guess I'm answering my own question here. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, but um, so there's still, uh, depending on what kind of product or business context we're talking about. Sure. Sometimes robotically the system can do everything, and other times there's human intervention required. So it's one thing to collect data, and it's another thing how it's structured, and then another thing how it's used. So, you know, as I mentioned in that article I just circulated, uh, people, I think businesses. House need to get as comfortable hiring data science experts uh, as third parties as they become hiring consultants. And it's, that, it's, that, it's that important. And if good leadership recognizes that if the skill isn't in-house, they can't keep faking it. And, and you know as well as anybody, you can't fake. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, only, the only people you're faking is yourselves, if, if that. Right. Right, and and that article, I mean, it was it was I thought it was very relevant, and we'll we'll put a, a link into the podcast kind of on, on the website when we launch the podcast. Um, but uh, when it just speaks to what I found what I found very relevant is, is the absolute need to have experts look at your data and not be afraid of somebody else having to you know opening up your 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 data to yeah. others to look at it because they can probably make better decisions than you can. Um, with the tools that you have, but also then what you do with that data and how, especially in that example of, of Moby, is, uh, which is a company you're, you're on the board on. Yeah, it's um, amazing. If an MIT lab spinoff, they're, they're really great yeah. people. Yeah. And, and how they're moving towards that connected trip, it seems like that, that we've been talking about for so long, right? Enabling, enabling a, much, a much less friction, a much more frictionless experience for customers and, and companies, for customers yeah. and companies who connect to it. It's fascinating. And a lot of it is. Companies are sitting on a lot of data and they don't realize it because the data they own is is merely collected as part of operating the business, right? And a separate orientation looking at that data companies collect and store and exploring alternate ways it can be valuable. Uh, it's a completely different, completely different skill. And uh, further to that, 
to call it the exhaust pipe, but companies do collect and store data, but then there's a lot of other data that isn't collected and stored. So for, that's what I mean by the exhaust fuel. It just comes in and goes mm -hmm. out. For example, so many companies now are doing messaging, both robotic and human chat messaging. And I talk to most companies that they're storing and analyzing all those conversations. And most of them are not storing their chat and messaging and leveraging that. Time of day, what's the battery level of your mobile device when you're interacting? There's so many data points that go out to the, they're like data exhaust, they go out to tailpipe. And that's the other part of the problem is so not only are many companies sitting on a lot of data, but it's not structured correctly. They're certainly not analyzing and using it. And then on top of that, a whole other pile of data is just flowing through and going out the exhaust that would help the company if they did store it and use it. Mm -hmm. I, I, always, yeah, I always recommend companies to store more data than they have the need for today and not throw anything away because you never know what use case will come along in the, yeah. in the next couple of years, right? And then you regret it if you don't have, how many times have you talked to companies that, oh, if we, would just, if we would have just kept that data, uh, we could now do something with it. We didn't know what to do with it at that time. Yeah. Now I mean, we can, right? You know, for people like us that normally we flew, we traveled 150, you know, I traveled 150 nights a year yeah. for decades. Yeah. And up until recently, you know, airlines knew I sat in a window seat. They just didn't act like they knew I sat in a window seat. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, like, why ask somebody to populate a profile? Oh, I prefer this. I prefer that. When they, for free, they know what you're doing. <laughs> well, the last two three times yeah. I sat in a window seat. Why do you need to ask me anything? <laughs> we and and in a way, customers are smart to get trained. When companies start asking like a lot of questions, thinking that it will engender them to their customers, it oftentimes backfires because the customers roll their eyes, so to speak, and say, man, if they have to ask me all these questions after all these years, they really aren't paying attention. Yeah, yeah. I think some of that became very evident over the last few months again. Um, you know, when I started traveling again in, in first in June and then in September, and, and I started looking at hotels, um, uh, you know, I had a really, really hard time finding any information that was really relevant to me on the websites of any of the hotels that I was looking at. Uh, it was all it was all like the, the, the current pandemic and the current uh, you know situation when it hasn't really happened when you look at some of the websites. It still talked about conventions and weddings and, and, and get togethers, yeah. but it didn't talk about safety and health and all that, yeah. right? Um, so so how, how what, what kind of recommendations do you um, do you have for 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 commercial leaders, which is really the audience that are listening to this mostly, um, uh, that, that are looking to obviously survive, stay competitive, move, move ahead. Um, a lot of people will say, well, I don't have the technology in place, you know, I don't know where to start. Um, you know, how do I convince the, the people that are making decisions on infrastructure, IT spending and all that, especially yeah. in times right now when I'm hardly profitable, right? Or, or hardly where, making money. Where do I begin answering that? You have another two hours? <laughs> bring you back i can bring you back <laughs> headlines to answer that is a lot of the expense cutting companies did they had to uh, but to think about when growth returns to remaining a much leaner meaner machine and and not just view those expense cuts as temporary necessities mm -hmm. number two I, oh and secondly is I, I found you know in terms of recommendations that there's too much stuff done across the board. Well, we'll do X percent reduction across the board. And we asked about how do you do this and that. Is some really well-managed companies 
took massive cuts in 90% of the business, but in key parts of the business, especially engineering and product development, they either held or increased investment because they knew now was the time. So that takes that takes uh, quality leadership to do stuff like that. We also talked about picking up the speed, the whole better, faster decisions, uh, shipping things out to your customers faster. I don't mean in trucks. I mean yeah. digital product delivery. Uh, really, really uh, important. And to understand that uh, the changes afoot are so massively profound that you need to look in the mirror and assess your organizational structure and culture and ask yourself, have you really used this time to rethink how you're organized or not? And uh, if not, it's a once in a lifetime opportunity to fix a lot of broken things. So those are some of the recommendations. So, so get your own house in order with your with the right structure and, and the right models, operational models, and, and 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 make those as lean as possible, and use the customer obsession and your and your increased speed speed to decision making to really move ahead. But that's that's kind of your the summary of what I heard. Is that yeah. reflected? You you summarize what I said better than I did. <laughs> <laughs> So you must have been very clear because I understood it. <laughs> well, that's great. You know, I, I kind of try and keep those uh, conversations here in the podcast to, to about 20, 25 minutes. So we're kind of at the, at the end of that. But I'd, I'd love to bring you back for a little bit in a few weeks or maybe at the end of the year or beginning of next year and, and um, do another conversation like this and then and, and see where we go from there or what's changed by that. It'd be a pleasure. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. Great. Well, I really appreciate it. Um, take care and uh, thank you very much for your time. Yeah, take care. Thank you very much for listening. And I hope you found this episode valuable for your own business circumstances. Check out the show notes, link to the episode, help more people in the industry find this podcast by sharing and rating. And don't forget to subscribe to the series wherever you listen to it.